to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N Tulsa.org. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 9 this morning. If you want to turn there in your Bible or your device, we'll also provide um, the scriptures up on the screen. Um, Chapter 9 is one of the most complex um, interpretational chapters in the Bible, particularly verses um, 24 through 27 um, are verses that um, even commentators and commentaries say. uh, There's so much that we don't know. Uh, One guy who is extremely uh, gifted, uh, Brian Chappell, um, one of the guys that uh, most guys would look to as a phenomenal preacher and commentator, scholar, biblical scholar. Uh, He was even asked to write uh, an extra commentary on those last chapters of uh, Daniel 9, and he refused. He said, no, I'm not going to do it, because then if I pin that, then everyone's going to kind of label me as, oh, that's, you're saying that's what God's going to do, because it's it's very complex. We're not going to be able to cover uh, verses 24 through 27 today, so we're going to start out next week with that. That has specifically on on the end times, Um, and so there's a lot there. I'm not going to try to um, cover all of that next week. Um, I'm going to try to give some uh, perspective on that, and then we'll go into chapter 10, and that will be next week, and then the, the following week we'll finish up with chapter 11 and 12, finish Daniel. So um, I hope it's been good for you. Like, like we've said repeatedly, most places will teach you the first, um, teach you the first six books and then leave the, the, the 7 through 12 because they're prophetic, they're apocalyptic, and, and it, it's difficult. And so anyone who says, we know exactly, this is exactly how it looks, um, just, you know, God God designed it that way. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today is uh, the, the first section of chapter 9. Um, and I, I want to let you know, it's, it's, uh, I think there's lots of things today, uh, for some of you that may be visiting um, today, we, we went through membership, about 12 weeks of membership teaching. Um, and then in uh, January, uh, December, February or January and February, and so then we've been waiting to have kind of this official um, members dinner, or it's, so it's a charter membership, and so we're having that today. And, and man, uh, God has um, been graceful, but there has been so much spiritual attack going on in our lives around us, uh, all kinds of things. We spent about seven hours in the ER yesterday. Our boys got to go to the lake with some people, and Jamie and I were at. She was at ER, and so she literally, as she's sitting there, her stomach was. Uh, cramped real bad and the night before we'd went to the uh to play some uh volleyball and some stuff and she was hurting real bad and she's literally telling me hey if if i don't come back if i'm if i something happens and i don't um make it back if they keep me in the hospital overnight or something make sure these little uh stickers get on the bags for the the shirts and stuff so i was like so if you don't make it back from the hospital my concern is the little stickers with our new logo on the bag. That, that, that's what your mind is about. And so even this morning and last after she got back, she was still working on things. And I don't, I don't even know where she's at today. Maybe she's, I don't know, I could ask the boys if she didn't make it. But she, it didn't end up anything like major. And so she went through all those things. This morning, I and mean, several things that have been happening. This morning, as I'm going 55 on Riverside, a guy, I mean, he was from here to Matt on a bicycle. I'm going 55, no lie. 
he goes right in front of me where I slam on the brakes, cars stack up behind me. And so um, it's no little thing for um, God to plant a church. I don't think that spiritual um, 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 satanic demons are behind everything when we stub our toe or you have a flat tire. Uh, there's, there's that part of Christianity that believes, you know, like the demons are everywhere. But I think sometimes in our circles, in our tribe, we, we don't want to look at what's actually going on in the spiritual realm. And Daniel 7 brings that into view. He brings into view things that are going on. We'll, we'll hit that a little bit at the end. But I want you to know that um, we are at a place where we want to be saying, God, what do you want to do with our lives? What do you want to do in this community? This is a dark, oppressed, spiritually captured, dark area. What, what, what do you want to do with souls, with lives? It doesn't take very long hanging out in this area um, to, to figure out it's broken. Um, other parts of the town are broken also, but at least, at least there's little fragments of light and there's little gospel outposts. So um, this week we're going to see this in, in Daniel 9. I hope this gives us perspective on where we're at. Um, desperate spiritual need produces conviction, confession, and repentance. So that's kind of the title. Uh, desperate spiritual need produces conviction, confession, and repentance. Now, now th- this is a, a very um, slap in the face um, chapter. This is for insiders. Remember, um, chapter 2 in Daniel through the end of 7 was in, um, went to um, where the, the language of the people, and then it went back to, at the end of chapter 7 to now we're going back to Hebrew. It went from Aramaic where everyone understood it to now it's, it was focusing on the people of God, Judah, particularly in Israel. Because they're in, they're in punishment, they're in discipline from the Lord. That's why all these nations have come down. And so in this, it, it's kind of a slap in the face because Daniel comes across something that, that halts him, that astounds him. And so we're going to see that. Um, so that's why I brought up at the beginning this idea of our neediness. Jesus' first statement in the Sermon on the Mount was, if you remember, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. When he said that, that was amazing. So he starts the whole teaching, chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, which some people have taught as go live this way and you'll get into heaven. Go be like this and you'll be a good Christian. That was not what he meant. The very first statement when he said that, it was astounding to especially the religious crowd, but even the common folk. When he said, um, blessed are the poor in spirit, the picture that he used in Aramaic, was this picture that they were very well aware of in in those cities and in that language. Um, That was a picture of a beggar, a guy who would be sitting, trembling. That little 13 and 14-year-old kids would sometimes come and be running by and play and kick and spit on, and people went the other way around them. So it was this picture of a spiritual, uh, this beggar who would hold his hand out like this, wouldn't even look up to people, but would just hold his hand out asking for any kind of donations. And so Jesus used this picture, blessed are people who see their lives spiritually like that. Spiritual bankruptcy, broken, desperate. I can't do anything to change this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. love. They will inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who see their state before God, separated spiritually bankrupt, and they're devastated by that reality. That creates a great need for a Savior. 
And sometimes I'm afraid that we, once we check mark that box of salvation, we get back into pulling the bootstraps up and we're going to go prove it now. We're going to go earn it. We're going to show you, God, how much that I can do for you. Side note, in our little, just as a side note, this is it's maybe tough to hear. I'm not going to go into this a lot, but just I want you to think through this. In our theological tribe, and we've become kind of popular again, we know we're supposed to believe that. We can quote to you about how we're spiritually depraved, how there's no one good, not even one, no one who's righteous. Uh, we, we know about our spiritual depravity. We know about our spiritual bankruptcy, Ephesians 2. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. But we, I think, actually believe that we're really, really good people. So just let that sit. Not only do we sometimes believe it, I think that we love being really good, good people. And that's a long ways off from that person seeing their need for mercy. So I'm just throwing that out there. If you want to take this 60 days and go, hey, God, thank you. He was kind of rude. He brought this up. Like, I don't think that myself of that way. Uh, it, it may be that we would just ask the question, um, man, maybe that, that's an issue that I need to look at. Holy Spirit, would you show me if I do love seeing myself as good? I know that the Bible teaches that I'm not that, but, but do I actually love that? And so... That may be hard. Just think through that. We'll go through these Psalms. We'll go through the rest of Daniel. So that's just a side note. With 60 days of feasting and fighting, maybe for some the Spirit may try to reveal that to some of us. We'll get more into that in the Psalms, but also in the fall. So that's kind of the end of that side note. So spiritual bankruptcy, separate from God. If the overall redemptive storyline, so think through those big pieces, the four pieces that we've talked about, most of you know about. So you got creation, fall, redemption, and then consummation, right? Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Creation, everything's perfect. And hey, we think about the trees and all the fruits and all these good things. What was God really saying? It's perfect. Adam and Eve are in perfect relationship with me. It's perfect. It's all good. Not just there's, there's pretty grass and they're keeping their yard mode. No, no, it was, hey, they get me. We're in perfect community. It's perfect. It's good. And then the fall happens. And so man is separated from God in his sin. And then we know that the storyline from then on is God's purposes and redemption and sending Christ eventually to redeem all of mankind. So all of Old Testament Israel, the whole Old Testament uh, people, no one, Gentiles or Jews, would ever be saved by their works, by their systems, by their sacrificial systems. No dead cows, no dead um, ox, nothing's going to forgive sins, right? They were looking to a Jesus they didn't even know his name yet, right? They didn't have an understanding of the Trinity, definitely, definitely didn't understand that God was going to send uh, the second person of the Trinity, his son, to die on the cross for sins. Didn't have that understanding. Knew that they were sinful, knew they needed salvation, looking for a Messiah, but that Messiah was going to come with this powerful force on the, the earth and rule it eternally. There's what they were thinking. They definitely didn't think, well, and this gets into the end of danger, uh, they definitely didn't um, uh, have a perspective of, a Jesus, the Son of God, coming first advent as a baby, as a human. They were looking for a powerful militaristic leader. And then here comes Jesus as a baby and grows up as a man. Three years of public ministry, killed on the cross, ascends to heaven, and now we're all waiting the second advent. 
So sometimes what people don't consider in their eschatology is, man, some of these Old Testament prophecies, they definitely were looking for a Messiah. They had no idea that Messiah was going to come once, die as God, and then ascend, and then come a second time. So that plays into people's eschatology without even realizing it. So if that is the storyline, and then everything's redeemed in Christ, and then we're awaiting the full consummation of that, then what we have to look at is, if that's the total redemptive storyline, Daniel 9 gives a clear picture of not only what God's view is for Old Testament Israel at that time, but also bigger picture for all Gentiles, what you must do to be saved. He gives a picture of this is what it would look like, similar to what Jesus said in Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the main idea today, this God-granted conviction, repentance, confession, and desperate need, all those things that we're going to see in Daniel 9, that leads a person, an individual, or families to the hope of renewal, the need for renewal, transformation, salvation, and eternal life. So that central message that we've seen there in Daniel, God is our only redeemer and savior. He wanted that to be clear for Judah as they had been taken away into Babylon. And then as he gave those visions of all those different scary creatures and the different visions and dreams that you're going to need a Savior. And secondly, our faithful covenant God is in control when all things seem out of control. So all those crazy stories that happened in Daniel that we've gone through so far, God was saying, I'm right here. I'm completely in control. I'm sovereign over all these matters. Our lives today crazy world pandemics and crazy situations, things that hit our lives. I'm in control. I'm sovereign. And not only am I sovereign, I'm in love with you in the middle of that. I care about the small things in your life. And then also God's redemptive future is pointing to and unfolding the person of Christ, the person, the work of Christ. So Daniel is a book about God's redemptive purposes, purposes all pointing to Christ. The overview of today's is, I'm just going to hit it real quickly, is in, in verses 1 through 3, we're going to see a context and posture. Daniel gives a little bit of context and then posture. And then Daniel's prayer of desperate neediness in 4 through 19. And in part of that, 4 through 8, Daniel is speaking to God directly, but you see a change in language where Daniel now goes side note commentary to Israel. Hey, Israel, remember, consider this. I'm telling you about your future. I'm telling you where we're at. Side note, and so it goes into that in verses uh, 9 through 14. And then 15 through 19 is the focal point, I believe, of this chapter. Not even the 70 weeks. Everyone's interested in verses 24 through 27, the end times, the 70 weeks. What does this mean? Eschatology. When is Jesus coming back? What is the end times? And, and God is, uh, I believe God is going, that's not the focal point. Daniel gets caught up on it, and then God uses that to get him to consider, man, where's your heart at? Where's the people's heart at? We're going to see that the focal point is this prayer that comes out. Um, this last week as we were at the, um, you know, week and a half ago when we were at uh, Florida, uh, favorite place to be. I, when, I was at, when I was at UPS for years, I would drive down two or three times and go and just get this little motel. And back then it wasn't all big and blown up and expensive. And so you get these little cheap motels and I would just go out and sit a chair out there and just all alone and just sit till like two or three in the morning and just play my guitar and then just sometimes just sit for a couple of hours and just listen. So I was in awe. I was running from God. I couldn't stand God, but I was in awe of his power. No one goes to the ocean or the Grand Canyon and stands and looks at something like that and goes, man, I am awesome. You, you stand there and you're going, this is incredible. This is overwhelming power. 
Who, who could have come up with this idea? The beauty of it, the power of it, the glory of it. And so I love introducing my boys and other people. That. And so one night, Jack and I, we had caught some little um, sand crabs at night, and it's dark. And then we went over and showed them to some little kids um, that were in the house. And then Jack and I went back over there to, to take them back to release them um, to, the, to the beach. And so we get over there, and so I just wanted to use that time. And so I said, hey, man, just take a look up so it's all dark out there, but you can hear that powerful... <sighs> Just the, that was the ocean roaring. That's my best rendition. That powerful, <sighs> my mouth's really dry. And so it's really loud and powerful. And I said, hey, look up. And so we just looked up. And he's kind of like doing this because it's dark. And, you know, you forget, like, you know, I'm going like nothing's going to hurt us here. But he, at first he's kind of looking around. Well, then I, I, I said, man, think about how far out God's creation goes in those stars. There's stars and galaxies up there that we can't even see right now that we still can't see. And then think about this, and we take our fingers and just get, and just your, the pinch of your fingers, the sand. How many grains of sand are just in your fingers? And God has knowledge to count every single grain of sand. Not only the visible sand stretching down the beaches and all around the U.S. and all around, but that goes into the water. He, he's, he's that knowledgeable to know the number of grains of sands. And then he, I brought out Job where he says, hey, where were you, Job? Since you're so great and spiritual, when I laid the foundations and said to the waters and the powerful waters, no farther will you go. This is the boundary where you will go. And so, and then when he talks in Job about going and standing as if he's um, this, this being that could put his feet down in the depths of the ocean. And so I just shared just a little bit about that and read like a couple of verses from Job on my phone. So it was probably two, two minutes and 40 seconds. And so I'm still doing this with Jack. And all of a sudden, Jack turns to me and just goes, Tears. Dad, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for the way I acted today. I'm sorry for arguing with my brother. I'm sorry for... What happened? Was I getting on to him? Was I telling him he was bad or you need to do this or you need to do that? Do you see what happens if we will take the time to block out the distractions? Three minutes of solitude and looking up, just at creation, not God himself, George Strait, I saw God today. No, it's his creation. There's a difference. It's the ocean. It's power. Two minutes and 45 seconds, he is halted. And what comes out? Conviction and repentance. I'm sorry. I need forgiveness. Man, what if we as adults, we know that's right. We would love that in our children. What if we as adults just applied that? Just going and getting alone and contemplating the greatness of God. And in that, God overwhelms us with who he is. And immediately, there's something powerful overwhelming. It's not a sound of the ocean. It, it's his righteousness. It's his holiness. It's what a beautiful thing. So I just said, you know, I was like, hey, man, I, man that's great, Jack. I, I think that's wonderful. But what I, I stopped and said, hey, you know, side note, what you're wanting to do is not even the important thing. What I want you to notice is what just happened. The Holy Spirit just caught a hold of you and opened your eyes to something much, much bigger. Not the ocean, not the stars, not the sand and the beach. The God of this universe just halted you. It's not even about forgiveness at that point. It's not about a little kid asking for forgiveness. It's not about the elation of a dad's heart. The fact that a supernatural God comes to a finite person and halts them. That's a beautiful thing. Um. We're going to see conviction, repentance, confession, desperate need. 
they all lead to this desire and hope for renewal and transformation. So um, let me pray, and we'll look at this first little section in, in Daniel. Father, we do thank you for your word. We pray that as we go into Daniel that we would do just like we see in the word we would respond accordingly. We would be a people that slow down enough in your word to respond to what you're wanting us to see. Sometimes not bullet points of knowledge, but you are wanting to be a heart surgeon, going after our hearts, mortifying sin, destroying idols. Would you allow us to be that type of people that were slow enough in your word and slow enough in solitude and silence that we would hear from you? Would you grant us that this morning? Would you lead us and guide us in truth, Holy Spirit, as we go into this? Would you let us know how this all points to the beauty and the glory of Christ in his gospel? And help us to live as if you are truly God. In your name we pray, amen. So in the first um, section there, in, in Daniel 9, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent, Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So notice there for a second, that's what caught his attention, the 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth, and ashes. So notice there um, what's happening. He sees in this book, he goes into reading Jeremiah, and something halts him. He, he finds out because Jerusalem has been, uh, Jerusalem, Israel and Judah have been removed. They're living as, living as exiles, as we've seen. And now he comes across in the book of Jeremiah over some time that there's an end to this, 70 years. So it catches his attention. And so God uses that in the word to halt him. And notice his response, I turn my face to the Lord God. Um, Israel would be screaming, yes, yes, the 70 years, what does that mean? What does that mean? When does this discipline end on us? And yet, like I said, God is going, that's not, that's not the point. The point is the prayer that comes out of this, the things that you're going to see that fly out of Daniel's heart, because these are God-wrought things that align with God's heart in this. Daniel gives a, a reference point, just the, the year of Darius, the Mede. So, so um, many authors do that. He's just kind of giving a historical reference. Back in the year when Darius was first um, uh, reigning, something stuck out to me, and this is what halted me. Notice Daniel's response, uh, he, the softened heart versus a defensive heart. I turn my face. Notice these things that he get, does. So I was seeking him by prayer. There's prayer, there's pleas for mercy, there's fasting, there's sackcloth and ashes. It doesn't say how long that Daniel did this. It doesn't say in the first hour this happened, the first 10 minutes is what we would want. It may have been quite a while that he was in, in, in the word of the Lord like that, reading Jeremiah, and then after fasting and sackcloth and ashes. That, that's a work. That, that's like an hour getting ready. That's like taking your clothes off and putting on the, this, this animal skin 
if sometimes they did if they didn't have that they would go and kill an animal skin it let it dry to be able to go through the process of putting this animal skin off so we, when he says sackcloth it was it was a purposeful thing of not wearing their comfortable clothes which i don't think their clothes are that comfortable and they but they would wear this rough skin and it was a, a, a physical reminder that something's broken here it was a physical reminder to get out of the earthly thinking to think about something eternal. The same way that with ashes. What are ashes representative of? Ashes are, are what is left when there is ruin. It's visibly clear that this is a city that's been destroyed and in ruins. They would take ashes and cover their faces with ashes. And it was a, a form of desolation, just, just like that needy beggar, just saying, this is the way I see myself. It wasn't 20 minutes. It wasn't 15 minutes. And so he does all this stuff, and I just ask you, man, does, is that what you were sold that Christianity was supposed to look like? Was that what you were sold, that this is what this is supposed to look like? And, and, and don't, don't mean that, uh, I don't, I'm not trying to get across that every single day, this is what you should be doing. Daniel wasn't doing this every day. He had a regular job, and he was praising the Lord and praying regularly and fasting regularly and doing those things. And, and, but then sometimes God has these seasons where he went into this heaviness. This is Daniel 9. It's a heavy, heavy chapter. Um, Richard Sibbs, the Puritan um, writer who wrote The Bruised Reed, I would suggest that if you haven't read it, he says this, Repentance is not a little bowing down of our heads, but working our hearts to such a grief as will make sin itself more odious unto us than punishment. So when you're afraid of sin, not because of the punishment or consequences, but you're afraid of sin because it is miserable. Does that define our Christianity? So this idea, are, are we a people like Daniel? Are, are we slowly reading and thinking through God's word in such a way that, that certain scriptures or sections, they, they just cause us to be halted? When's the last time that you were reading and then you just had to stop and you spent the next 15, 30, 45 minutes just on one sentence going, oh God, this blows me apart. I'm exactly opposite. How did I get to this place, God? How, how did I get so far off from this? When's the, when, when's the last time that, that that was happening in a week? In a month? Conviction. To stop and contemplate. What does this mean for me? Where is my heart on this matter that the scriptures just brought up? to then be turned in response toward grievous conviction over sin. And then notice with Daniel, even other people's sin. Daniel starts confessing other people's sin, as we're going to see. So you may say, hey, Sankey, man, just to be honest, that, that's not, not my life. In a long time. Uh, to, to, to pause and be halted by God's word, man, I, to be honest, I struggle even getting into his word to be disciplined in that. So that, that may be the majority of people. So there's good news. We're all weak and needy and failures. And God is not going, hey, you've got to prove it by 60 days at 4.30 a.m. Notice with Daniel, we'll see it later on. As soon as you just go, hey, God, I'm, I'm really weak in this. Luke 15, the loving Father, I'm right there with my arms wide open. You're never going to prove it to me. I know you're a failure. I know how weak you are. Admit it and get with me. 
I love you that much. I'm not going to sit there and punish you for this. And so if you're in that case, man, maybe that would be good for you. We're in the perfect place to do that. But let's just get real honest. I think, I think that we don't even know what this looks like. I think this is a lost art, what we're seeing in Daniel here. So if, if, if the attractional church has taken over for the last 30 years and the, the consumeristic church model has been the thing, so what would it take to get more people here? What would it take? And then you get you go into like Daniel 9, fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Like, that's not going to draw people in. Like, put that up on your, instead of the, the cool pictures on the websites of all the hands raised and the cool lights and all that stuff and, you know, how the websites, they can do all this cool stuff and, and makes it look like, ah, oh, something's happening there. God must be there. Like, get a picture of people laying down with, like, white stuff on their face. You know, you're like, oh, is it like a funeral there? What? Stay away from that place. God hates them. Man, there's something that God goes, man, I, I want people to take the time for that. So we're giving these two months, 60 days, just for you to, just to consider. And, and I'm not promising that God is going to just do certain things for you, but like at least you're creating the environment to go, God, would you speak to me on these matters? I, I want to be responsive in heart. I think that sometimes we get in mind that this service, a well-put-together song list, some intentional prayers, a, a well-put-together, hopefully quick sermon uh, with, with easy one, two, three life application points, uh, good fellowship and food at small group, like that's, that's what the church is supposed to be doing, but, but not this, not what Daniel's doing. Um, are you willing to do that and keep doing that until he speaks to you? How could you be a successful church if that's what you're calling people to and experiencing? And again, I'm not saying that this is going to be, that that's what you do every single week or you expect your Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. But, but if it's been six months and you haven't had that, there's probably some sins of commission and some sins of omission that have gone on that you're just looking over that, that you're never even admitting to God. You're not confessing which is saying, I'm really okay with those. So sins of commission being things that you are doing and acting and behaving, you're purposely doing, I know the rule is this, but I'm going to go ahead and do this over here. Or I know um, I, I'm not supposed to do this, I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. That's sins of commission. Sins of omission is the, oh, I, I didn't even know that was a part of your law, God. And all of those are sins. And, and we just look over those things. We don't even think about it. So um, guiding thoughts. And we were thinking through planting here two years before we even launched. And then every month leading up to it, very clear. Um, first of all, just the idea of, I didn't think it was going to be Tulsa. So like, are you sure, Tulsa? Let's do two out of three. Let's do the, you know, what do you call the name, whatever that is, uh, rock, paper, scissors. Um, very clearly, this idea, I am a jealous God. I am jealous for people's hearts. And so I think mainstream church people, yeah, I, I know God's jealous for us. I, I know I should be more, and I think God's going, go sit alone with me. Get alone. I'd love to talk. And I think we're scared of that. Get alone with me, and I'll let you know what that looks like. I'm, I'm jealous. You've got a lot going on in your life. I, I created you. I redeemed you. I own you. I'm jealous of some things. 
church planters and congregations in church planting. Church planters, very typical for them to think, we're going to go church plant. Oh, there's this cool area of town. It's kind of the hipster cool. Uh, it's where growth's happening. It's booming and all these things are going on. That's the area we want. And very, very typically, like they try and try and try. And then God sends them to this, uh, here's all that they can afford or here's this place they get into. And so it's nothing like what they thought. Like they thought, surely for a church to succeed in years three, four, and five, it better look like this. And like it just doesn't go that way. For the congregation, for the people joining and coming to those things, many times they're thinking through like, man, yeah, let's, let's kind of, we, we feel like we're, we want to be a part of this church plant, and it's going to be, man, we're going to be going out and doing this and this and this. And God goes into, hey, I'd love to do some heart surgery. We think we're going to be like air traffic controllers, like on this, oh, man, it's incredible. We're like Paul, modern-day Paul. And God go, is going, hey, how's your marriage doing? You treat your wife really poorly. You have a really horrible attitude towards your husband. Your kids, they need lots of love and grace and the gospel. But we want to go do very typical in church planting. So God with Daniel and God with us is going, I love you enough to give you myself. Would you take time and sit still and, and listen? So then in the next section, four through eight, I'm going to read through this is bigger font. Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time. This is, you could spend a whole sermon on this. But notice the initiator and the provider of all that follows. It's all flowing out of this great and awesome God who is um, full of steadfast love for his people, who keeps covenant with all those who love him and keep his commandments. And now listen to the sin list that, that Daniel goes through. We have sinned and done wrong, and acted wickedly, and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, and our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all of Israel, and to those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. And then in verse 9 through 14, to the Lord our God, and this is where he makes the turn. He, he was praying to God, and now he makes a turn. Israel, listen up. I'm praying to God. These things are coming to mind. The Holy Spirit's revealing these things. Israel, this is us. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity that has brought upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous 
in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. So he's, he's going into, this is Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. We have not kept, in your, kept your covenant, Kepin. We have not obeyed your laws. You said if we turn from those things and we don't obey, that you would bring these curses, that people would come upon us and destroy us, that we'll be taken away. That's where we're at. We're in that place now. He realizes that. And he's saying to Israel, to Judah, this is the situation. Notice the list of things there. I've got a whole list of the sins there that, that he goes through. We have sinned. We have done wrong. We have acted wickedly. We've rebelled. Turning aside from your commandments. All those things. Not obeyed the voice of the Lord. We've transgressed your law. We've turned aside. Refused to obey. What do you think it was? What do you think it was that allows a people to treat God in that way? What allows a people who are familiar with how great God is and all that he's done, what allows people to completely act like he is not important, to act like his laws aren't important? What do you think it is? It's just that, that people um, get distracted? Is it other loves and other desires remember the idea of you are what you love it's not just what you think but but, but what you actually love because when we sin we usually know the law we know it's sin and we go ahead and sin so it's not a matter of knowledge or you having a, a scripture bullet point because your loves drive way past that scripture bullet point you are what you love not just what you think we're not thinking sticks so is it other loves what allows people is it the busyness, the toil of life and work and family and schedule and laziness? Is it tempting sin, promising something that's better than God? Because we could turn and ask, well, what is it for us? And Israel, Daniel, they had no idea about Jesus. They had no clarity. We've got the full, we, we've got the story, we've got it in, in, in you know, little children's books, we've got it in fairy tale style with little cartoons, we've got it in a thousand different forms. We all know the story very clearly of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension and he's coming back soon. And sometimes we still say, hey, you know what, God? Shut up. I'll do what I want to do right here. I'll let you know when I want you to be God again. And that's every single attitude of sin. That's every heart string of sin. That's every time we're tempted. All of those things. Notice not only how they've sinned, the whole list of how they've sinned, but also who had sinned. He says, our kings, our princes, our fathers, all the people of the land, the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Israel, all of Israel. There's something striking in the section because... Um, Daniel actually starts taking ownership and responsibility for sins that he hasn't committed. So notice he's saying, we have sinned, Israel, when it was actually his father's generation, grandfather, great-grandfather, Old, um, Old Testament Israel, hundreds of years ago, we have sinned. Because of the way that we have done, now this calamity has fallen. And Daniel's really like, I didn't do those things. But he doesn't take that posture. Notice he takes responsibility for sins of others. So, so that's a weird question. This is their fathers and forefathers, past kings, past princes, past leaders, past Israelites. So we see this biblical example of hearts so softened instead of defensive that they confess sins corporately 
that they haven't even committed personally. So should we commit sins of our culture or of our nation or sins of our churches or sins of past generations? We presume that, no, there's no need for us to confess sins of others, even if it was our church 50 years ago or our denomination for the last 150 years. Daniel doesn't make that presumption. There's something he sees about being that, that spiritual bankrupt beggar. I need mercy. I'm in need. Isaiah 6, the famous section with Isaiah Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen. See what the turning point for him? The reality of sin, personally, in all these people. When you get a glimpse of the glory of God, and he he gets a hold of your heart, all of a sudden you, you don't go into defense mode before him. Some people think that that will be their stance. If there is a God, one day I'll stand and I'll tell him, well, you know, here's, here's the way I saw life. That, that will not be the case. It's not an old Moses, white-bearded guy just sitting you know, with a cane that's just kind of like, well, I don't know what to do with you. That will not be the, the pails of thunder and things going on there. Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, all, many of the other prophets, Jesus, Paul, Peter, James, Luke, and John have the same mindset on corporate sin and confession. Those, those peoples and the church were born in an Eastern collectivist society and identity where we in the West have a very individualistic identity. So even getting saved is just a matter of individual. And so and, and there's no idea on... Um, uh, ideas that, that when it even talks about family baptisms and family salvation, each individual person has to personally, individually repent. It's not like, hey, I did it so my kids and my, my, my family saved because I did it. Every single person will have to give an account for their sin, and you have to be saved every single one. But they have a, a very collectivist understanding that they're sorrowful for, for all the sins. So um, why does Daniel confess both private and corporate sin? Even sins that he was not personally guilty of? Number one, like Isaiah, he had seen the holiness of God. He was brought low because of the holiness of God. Is that your view? Number two, he he knew, Israel, you're going to have to have a new DNA, a new discipleship, a, a new learning pattern where you see the holiness of God, and we can't be a sinful people like this. We've got to be a different people, Israel. And then third, just carrying the burdens of others. Care. The most loving thing I can do is carry that burden, get underneath that with them. So what would be different if we saw ourselves as carrying the sin burden of others, like Daniel does here, versus what often happens? Can you believe what they're doing? I would never do that. I would never. See the difference? If we see ourselves as I'm going to go in and get under that sin burden with them, I'm not near as judgmental. I'm not viewed near as self-righteous. Oh, well, why would we do that? Where do you get that idea? What did Jesus come to do? Completely fallen, completely depraved, can't say themselves, I've got to go and take on the sin burden for them, become sin for them. So you have this idea of getting in the midst of that people 
and loving them instead of, I would never. I'm so proud that we are not like that. Remember the side note earlier? I think we love being good, good people. We're very proud of how good we raise our families. Proud of the things we don't do. Proud that we don't do those things. Daniel says, woe is me, God, just like Isaiah. Would you forgive us of our sins? Would you forgive us of these things? So I know this is a slap in the face, maybe more particularly in our little tribe, theological tribe. But if we're right about our doctrines of grace and we're right about discipleship and we're right about plurality of elders and we're right about our biblical stances, it should not lead us to pride. It should only lead us to more humility and grace for others because we understand depravity. We don't just quote knowledge bullet points about our depravity. We understand our brokenness and neediness. So this is what Harbor Network and Sojourn Church and others like us want to be aware of and sensitive concerning when it comes to issues of exploitation and greed, of evangelical political ties, um, complementarian functions, race and class issues, um, respect and trust of God's officials put over us, mercy and social injustices, previous generations, previous entire denominations, previous and current church bodies and leaderships, that they get ticked and offended and defensive if you even bring up the topics, much less spend time first just in prayer like Daniel did. Maybe in prayer I would walk out with a a softened heart instead of a dogmatic defensive mode. Prayer before the Lord first. Second, just being willing to take a learner's humble posture and hear perspective from others without judging. Seeking to understand instead of just instant defense. Third, doing some objective heart assessment with input from others. That's hard on us for whatever reason. Many of you know that the Southern Baptist Convention this week, they've got some big things going on. Could be a huge divide coming from this huge, the largest entity in the world. As far as a denomination, huge divide. We understand that God calls us not merely to condemn others, but to step in and carry their sin burden and see it as well as our own sins as our sins against God. You, oh God, we have sinned as a nation. It changes our posture a little bit. Think through that. That may be how people are viewing us. So we need to think through the way that we handle our stances. doesn't mean you compromise your stance. Or never, never saying, oh, we go and compromise and are okay with sin. That, that's not at all what Daniel's doing. L- read through that carefully. Read through Jesus and Paul. Never, never being okay with sin. Oh, oh, oh I can go and sin now? That's not it at all. But just our posture in the middle of that. Look in verses 15 through 19. Prayer for the glory of God and the good of the city. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, he goes all the way back to what God wanted to be known for back then, and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins. And for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword 
among all who are around us. Do you feel like that's the church? We no longer have credibility. We no longer have a voice at the table in many circles. We've become a byword. And sometimes I think that we think it's because we're so good and holy. And I think that the lost world's going, no, you seem to have a list of respectable sins that you're okay with inside the church. And since you've been saved, you can still treat people this way. You can still judge people this way. You can still be like this. But the thing that I'm struggling with, oh, no, there's a wall. And I would have to stop that to get into your club. That's not what we're saying. That's what's perceived if you spend time with lost people. So thinking through that, have we become a byword to the people around us? We've lost any kind of credibility, any kind of sense of um, value to their conversation. To where we're an enemy and we're known as haters when we haven't done anything sometimes. So we've got to think through, how do we come to the table with that type of posture then? And you better, you know, Come up with your list of things that here's what you must do before I'll sit at your table. Just thinking through, we're, we're, it's a different culture. Now, therefore, our, O oh, oh, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, notice what he prays here, for your glory, God, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Can you imagine Israel hearing this? The Sanctuary being the focal point where they thought God's own being came down and dwelled with them. Israel would never have imagined in Ezekiel um, was it 9, 10, and 11 when um, God empties and leaves the sanctuary. They never saw that coming. And now Israel is going, the holiest part, it's desolate, God. Would you shine your face back upon this place? Oh my God, find your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So you see this plea, this isn't a proud, boastful plea. This is a broken, desperate plea. And I, I, just, I just wonder if that was our stance as a people of God. I just wonder if that was our posture. And, and the groundwork of it is each individual person each family going and getting alone with God to God, where are we in this? And that, that's difficult. We've got a lot of timing. We've got a lot of things going on. Forgive. Hear. Pay attention and act. So, I think that we can take from Daniel 9 this idea of what kind of people is it that God really is able to speak to and they, they hear what he's saying. Instead of going through the religious circle of just coming to a service and having small group and doing a, a couple of service projects and thinking that's Christianity. But where God may be going, I, I want to do heart surgery. 
the greatest thing that could happen for you was for you to know me and for me to crush and kill some of those idols at your heart. And some of them are religious idols. Spurgeon said this, Oh, that we might learn how to pray so that God could be the subject as well as the object of our supplications. Oh, God, the church needs you above everything else. A poor little sick, neglected child needs 50 things, but you can put all these needs into one if you say that child needs its mother. So the church of God needs a 1,000 things, but you can put them all into one if you say the church needs her God. So, is that what you're coming for? Are you wanting more of God? Are you wanting more of God himself or or God and? Or all the stuff and then eventually God? Where's your heart? Is it it one of humble, teachable brokenness? That doesn't mean that you have to be a person that's just walking in melancholy sadness all the time, gloomy. Not, Not at all. Because actually that leads to rejoicing. So consider those things. We're going to cover the rest of those uh, going into next week, uh, the rest of the chapter. As we move to the Lord's Supper, um, I want to give you just a a couple of moments to pray and to respond to what the Lord's seen, what the Lord has revealed to us today. Um, So let me uh, just give us some time to respond. Think through where your heart's at. Think through, is there a softened heart? Is there the chance that I've just got all these ideas and thoughts of here's what theology is, it's a nice little neat boxes, and all of these things about God have to line up this way and my life looks this way, and God's going, man, I would love to spend some time with you. I would love for you to sit in silence and solitude. That's not just at this service, but that's at home during the week. Let's take some time to think through that. I'll close this in a second.